welcome to this week's episode of Across the Bifrost, the Mighty Thor podcast, where we explore the world of Marvel's Mighty Thor. I am your host, Ryan Doze, and you are in for a treat today. Starting off the show today, we are going to finally talk about Thor Love and Thunder, the next film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which comes out May 6th. 2022. That may seem like a long ways away, but there is so much to cover with this film, and that's why we are going to break down and prepare for it in pieces along the way. For this first preview segment, we are going to break down the fabulous cast of the film, from supporting roles to the red carpet A-listers, from Christian Bale to Tessa Thompson, from Natalie Portman to Chris Hemsworth. We are going to talk about everyone that makes up this talented roster. We'll cover them all today on the show. I know you're going to, if you are a fan of the MCU, you are going to be a fan of this segment and you are going to enjoy it. And wait, there is going to be more at the end of the episode. Today, I am joined by former Marvel creator, editor, and all-around awesome guy, Mike Rockwitz, is going to stop by and talk with us about his marvelous journey in the world of comics. He took a happenstance high school internship and turned it into a career creating the characters that we all know and love, which included, of course, Our guy, the namesake of the show, the Thunder God himself, the Mighty Thor. I have part one of that conversation for you today. Before we jump into those segments, I wanted to personally thank any and all of you who have enjoyed this show. It is truly a labor of love creating this platform for Thor fans to come and hear content about one of their favorite heroes. I I thoroughly enjoy that. For your listenership, I'm greatly thankful. And if you want to support the show further, consider leaving us a rating and review if you're on iTunes and following us on Spotify. Becoming a subscriber also ensures that you will never miss an episode of Across the Bifrost. Whenever we jump aboard the Rainbow Bridge, you will know, you'll be notified, and you'll be able to enjoy that content. If you would do those things, we would greatly appreciate it. Without further ado, let's get to the show and break down the cast of the long-awaited fourth installment of the Thor franchise, Love and Thunder. Okay, everyone, I'm going to take a drink of water real quick before we get started on this journey through the cast of Love and Thunder. So, Here's how we're going to do this. I am going to break down every credited actor on this movie, but we're not going to exactly go in depth on every single person like we will uh, later on in the episode for actors such as Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, Christian Bale, and Tessa Thompson. Some of the more minor roles and some of the guest appearing roles we are going to breeze by and kind of just a hint hint at and and touch on real quick and then we'll we'll move on. We will be doing multiple previews of Love and Thunder, so don't worry if there's an actor or a character that we didn't necessarily go as in depth on as you would have hoped. Do not worry, do not fret. We will cover them in their entirety later on in our preview series for this film. Again, there's a lot to cover with this movie. So, Bear with me, we are going to tackle the cast today, and then we'll tackle the crew and characters and plot later on down the road. But today, 
the cast, the cast of Love and Thunder. So here are some of the more minor roles that are going to be had for this movie. We see a trio of actors reprising cameo roles in this movie. Matt Damon, Sam Neill, and Luke Hemsworth are all back as the actors who portrayed Loki, Odin and Thor respectively in the Ragnarok movie that fun little scene we get to see at the beginning of the movie as uh, Tom Hiddleston and uh, Tom Hiddleston's Loki is taking in some theater uh, disguised as Anthony Hopkins Odin he's taking in some theater the tragedy of Loki uh, Matt Damon of all people shows up as Loki Sam Neill from the Jurassic Park series shows up as Odin and Luke Hemsworth the brother of Chris Hemsworth is uh, playing Thor which is kind of a, a fun little nod there They will all reprise their acting roles in this Love and Thunder film. Then we see a new cast member being added as also a new character. Russell Crowe, the uh, famed uh, Academy-nominated and winning actor, is going to play the role of Zeus, the god of the Olympians from Marvel Comics in this movie. It's really not been defined yet what he's going to be doing in this movie. For a lot of these minor roles, we're not really given much direction yet as to how they will interact with Thor and the other uh, larger, uh, more headlining actors. But Russell Crowe as Zeus should be an interesting addition because another character that is often tied in with Thor is the Marvel Comics version of Hercules. And Zeus is the father of Hercules, not only in Greek mythology, but in Marvel Comics. So Russell Crowe as Zeus may be hinting at a Hercules appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe coming up soon. Thor fans and Hercules fans can only hope that that is what Russell Crowe's inclusion in this movie might be uh, related to. Then we get to a fun minor role being uh, being given to Melissa McCarthy, the uh, comedic actress uh, powerhouse in the uh, in the realm of comedies. She is going to be portraying possibly an alternate version of Hella. So Kate Blanchett took on the role of Hela for the Ragnarok movie. And as we know from the Ragnarok movie, her character, uh, she got the axe at the end of that movie when Surtur destroyed Asgard. So Melissa McCarthy taking on the role of Hela in this film is probably a multiverse uh, related role. She's probably going to be more of a comedic touch on the character. And also her husband, Ben Falcone, who is often in her movies, is listed in an undisclosed role. So Melissa McCarthy and her husband Ben Falcone are also going to be in Love and Thunder uh, using uh, using up some minor uh, screen time, minor roles. We also get to see the return of Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster. Now we know the Grandmaster on Sakaar, uh, we, we were led to believe that he died after the uh, the ends of the events on Sakaar. So maybe it's a flashback. Maybe it's a multiverse shenanigans. Who knows? But Jeff Goldblum is 
going to reprise his role as the Grandmaster in Love and Thunder. Also, a returning star from the Thor movies of the past, Jamie Alexander is going to be returning to her role as Sif. Now, earlier on in the summer, we got to see Jamie Alexander return to the role of Sif in the Loki TV show in a small kind of fun cameo role with Tom Hiddleston's Loki being punished for uh, his crimes against the timeline. He gets put into this loop scenario where Sif continually beats him up. And uh, that was a fun scene to see. And we get to see more of her in this Love and Thunder feature film coming out in 2022. So Jamie Alexander returning to the big screen on, uh, on this project. That covers kind of the minor roles on this film that we have been uh, officially given uh, to look at. So lots of, lots of talented actors and actresses uh, either taking upon new roles or returning in roles that we have definitely enjoyed in the past. The next group of actors who are going to be in this film that I want to cover are the Guardians of the Galaxy. So at the end of Endgame, we get to see Thor go off on a new adventure, and he makes this uh, reference to them as the Asgardians of the galaxy. So the crew of the Milano uh, are off on an adventure, and we get to see them in this movie. I would assume probably in cameo roles, but the screen time uh, is probably up for grabs now since we we don't really know much about the storyline about this movie. So... The Guardians of the Galaxy are Dave Bautista as Drax the Destroyer, Palm Clementif as Mantis. I really hope that I pronounced that halfway right. Uh, Vin Diesel as Groot, Sean Gunn as Kraglin Obrintali. Again, I hope I pronounced that word right. And then the two major roles for the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, and actors that have been very outspoken about the performances that they've done in Love and Thunder are Karen Gillan as Nebula and Chris Pratt as Peter Quill, Star-Lord. So I want to cover Karen Gillan's, uh, what she's been saying about this film leading up to it, because I believe she has a lot of interesting and thought-provoking uh, things that could maybe even hint at what Love and Thunder is going to bring to us as fans. So when she was describing her work on Love and Thunder, Gillan stated that Taika, Taika Waititi, the director of the film, it really brought out the bonkers side. I think everything is just really, really fun, and it's going to be bonkers and wild. So she also goes on to say, I don't know if it's personal levity. Like, I don't know if she, Nebula, is finding herself funny or if she's just being funny. In her seriousness, I think we will find her funny and the pure aggression that we've tapped into. So Nebula sounds like she's going to be really, really humorous in this role, but also we're going to get to see some of her more tenacious, fierce side, which is exciting because Nebula is such a complicated character. In an interview with Collider, Karen Gillan said, my reaction to reading the script was excitement. I was like, is this going to be, this is going to be a hell of a ride. It's Taika at his best and at his most Taika. 
fans of Taika Waititi will definitely know that Taika can take a simple idea and just draw all the craziness out of it. So Karen goes on to say that the Guardians in it, I think, are the, just hilarious. And also, Thor is given more, he's even more hilarious than he was last time. So that kind of hits on one thing that Chris Hemsworth, and we'll get to this in a little bit, Chris Hemsworth has been lauded uh, for his rep- performance in Ragnarok because in Ragnarok they reinvented and twisted the Thor movie uh his humor his comedic chops and Chris Hemsworth really came into his own as the character really stamping his own personality on the role so according to Karen Gillan that is just more heightened in this new movie and then next we come to the leader of the guardians Chris Pratt is in this film as Peter Quill, Star-Lord. Chris Pratt said about Love and Thunder uh, that it would continue the rivalry between Quill and Thor that was established in Infinity War and Endgame. Those two were just dynamite anytime they were on the screen together, so we get to see just the next level of that rivalry, according to Pratt. And while he was promoting his latest film, The Tomorrow War, Pratt stated about Chris Hemsworth that he is great and he is so good to work with. People are going to be really astounded when they see what he's brought to this film and what he and Taika have brought to Thor 4. It's next level. Hemsworth ratcheted it up to another level. So I was just in awe of his presence. He was a man god in real life. It was cool to be there with him. So Chris Pratt very, very complimentary, very, very much praising Chris Hemsworth's performance in this upcoming film. I have no doubt that we are going to get to see these two share the screen in some hilarious and epic ways. They were definitely one of the highlights of Infinity War and Endgame, how they would constantly be going back at each other, kind of comedically playing those alpha roles. Really, really enjoyed their chemistry, especially in Infinity War. Now, we come to the main headline performers for Love and Thunder, and that will be Tessa Thompson, Christian Bale, Natalie Portman, and Chris Hemsworth. So, going to take one more swig of water before we hit the big names. Always got to stay hydrated, especially when you're... um, you're trying to just uh, carry on such a great, great preview of this awesome cast. Gotta stay hydrated to promote this awesome movie. First, we come to Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson, as most of you will know, is reprising her role as Valkyrie in Love and Thunder. You may know her from popular movies like Dear White People, Selma. She was in both of the Creed boxing movies. She was in Annihilation, which also starred uh, her Love and Thunder co-star, Natalie Portman. She also was in Men in Black International alongside Chris Hemsworth. And she was in the movie uh, Sorry to Bother You. Also the Disney Plus movie Lady and the Tramp where she voiced Lady. Great movie uh, that I definitely enjoyed on Disney+. Plus. She will reprise her role as Valkyrie in this upcoming fourth installment of the Thor franchise. She debuted as Valkyrie in 2017. 
Thor Ragnarok, and she also made an appearance in the climactic battle with Thanos in Endgame. The last time we saw her uh, was at the end of Avengers Endgame as the new ruler of New Asgard, which was bestowed upon her by Thor before he left with the crew of the Guardians, and now she is the ruler of the displaced Asgardian people. Now, Valkyrie plays an important role in the MCU and in the comics universe because she is an openly uh, prominent LGBTQ hero. Uh, The bisexuality of the character is going to be addressed in this movie, according to Thompson and producer Kevin Feige. Thompson has said about this this new uh, development of the character's sexuality that as the new king, she says... She needs to find her queen. That will be her first order of business. She has, uh, she has come up with some ideas, and she's going to keep us posted. That coming from Tessa Thompson uh, at a red carpet event. There's lots to be explored with Thompson's return to the Thorverse. So we'll continue to cover Valkyrie as a character, and also Tessa Thompson uh, when 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 she speaks out about how important Valkyrie is, especially to the LGBTQ community. We will cover more of that character. We're actually in a few weeks going to be covering the latest issue of Mighty Valkyrie coming from Marvel Comics, and uh, that will be an exciting, exciting subject to follow and track as we get ready for Love and Thunder. Now, let's talk about a new cast member and the new villain for Thor Love and Thunder. Christian Bale brings us a fantastic new, uh, very, very fresh villain, Gore the God Butcher. Christian Bale is, uh, as he is an Academy Award winning actor. You may know him from films like Empire of the Sun, The Fighter, for which he did win his Oscar. I absolutely loved the movie The Fighter. He's also in American Psycho, American Hustle, the 310 to Huma remake, Uh, My personal favorite Christian Bale movie, The Prestige. If you have not seen The Prestige, you absolutely need to go out and watch that. And he's also, uh, uh, people probably mostly know him nowadays as Bruce Wayne, Batman from the Dark Knight franchise uh, brought to us by Christopher Nolan. His most recent films were Vice uh, in 2018, where he portrayed former Vice President Dick Cheney, and he was also one of the lead roles in Ford vs. Ferrari in 2019. Ford vs. Ferrari, also a fantastic film. If you have not seen it, go out and watch it. He was officially cast as Gore the God Butcher in December of 2020. Uh, Natalie Portman said of working with Christian Bale uh, in their 2015 movie, Night of Cups, uh, Christian would do surprising things all the time. It was fun to watch and sometimes scary. Like when he's like diving off a dock into the ocean, you don't expect it in the middle of a scene. But he also keeps everyone, everything feeling very alive and spontaneous. It was fun. It was a fun and unusual experience. So Natalie Portman, familiar with Christian Bale as a co-star, and definitely gives us this impression that Christian Bale is going to bring not only star power to Love and Thunder, but he's going to bring this sense of energy and spontaneity to the film. So I'm very much looking forward to 
Christian Bale coming over to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and portraying this character that not a lot of people know about. And as far as it goes for Gore the God Butcher, he debuted in 2013 in issue number one of Jason Aaron and Asad Ribic's Thor God of Thunder comic book series. Uh, Gore is a vicious killer hell-bent on butchering whole pantheons of gods in the Marvel Universe. He, uh, We will do a full breakdown about Gore. We're actually going to try and do the entire Jason Aaron run of comics before Love and Thunder. That may be an ambitious task to do, but we're going to give it a shot, and we will definitely be talking about Gore leading up to the film. Suffice it to say, he is one of the most brutal and sadistic Thor villains uh, that we've ever seen and that uh, the God of Thunder has ever encountered. Now we go from villains to returning heroes. So let's talk about Natalie Portman returning to the role of Jane Foster and taking on a new mantle as the mighty Thor in Thor Love and Thunder. This Academy Award-winning actress uh, makes her return to the MCU after an almost nine-year hiatus since her performance in Thor The Dark World. Uh, Along with the first two Thor films, you may know her from other movies such as The Other Boleyn Girl, Annihilation, which she was also in with Tessa Thompson, uh, No Strings Attached, V for Vendetta. Again, V for Vendetta. If you have not seen V for Vendetta... You need to go watch that, like, right now. It's a fantastic film. Black Swan, which she uh, received her Oscar for, and she was one of the leads in the prequel Star Wars trilogy as Padme Amidala opposite Ewan Ewan McGregor, Hayden Christensen. uh, Star Wars definitely uh, probably the thing she's most known for, uh, if not for the Thor movies. Bringing you up to speed a little bit on where Jane, the character, is at at this point in the uh, Thor timeline. She is an astrophysicist and Thor's ex-girlfriend who is undergoing cancer treatment while becoming the superhero Mighty Thor and gaining the powers of Thor. So, according to Looper.com, Natalie Portman uh, was not going to come back to Marvel uh, for just anyone. Uh, Taika Waititi really was the linchpin in the decision to come back to the role of Jane Foster and to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Waititi's idea for a female Thor was very attractive to Portman, and uh, she trusted Waititi's vision and signed back on to do this film uh, because she was going to be done with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. According to studio chief Kevin Feige, uh, the director, Taika Waititi, won her over uh, quickly, and uh, they just hit it off. Um, this, uh, Feige said that they had been in touch with her. Uh, she was a part of the MCU family, and when they put her and Taika together, it just made sense for them to agree to go forward with this idea. In 2020, Portman stated, I can't tell you that much uh, about the film. I'm really excited, she said. I'm starting to train to get muscles. If there can, uh, if there can be all these female superheroes, the more the, of them there are, the better it is. I'm trying to think. It's based on the graphic novel The Mighty Thor. She's going through a cancer treatment and is a superhero on the side. So Portman kind of sprinkling in a little bit of those 
uh, teases and those little tantalizing bites of information that we wanted from her return to this role. And definitely uh, knowing that she is going to be portraying the mighty Thor, uh, again, based on a Jason Aaron uh, era uh, creation in the comic books, is definitely excited I'm very excited for Natalie to return to this uh, movie and bring a fresh version of Thor to life. Jane Foster Thor is one of my favorite versions of Thor. And definitely uh, we are going to be covering Jane Foster's run as Thor in its entirety. Uh, So I will uh, restrain the rest of my excitement until then. But until uh, until then, just know I, I'm really excited for this character and uh, looking forward to them expanding and uh, seeing Jane Foster get the Taika Waititi treatment, whatever that uh, entails. Here we are. We come to the headliner, uh, the man that uh, brought the role of Thor to life into the big screen. Chris Hemsworth returns to the role of Thor in this upcoming film. This will be his eighth full-length feature uh, for Hemsworth in the role of Thor. Uh, It also will not be his last. Hemsworth has said uh, that this is not his goodbye to the character. And that is reassuring uh, as actors like Scarlett Johansson, Robert Johnny Jr., and Chris Evans have all kind of stepped away from these famous roles. It's definitely not going to be the last ride for Hemsworth. Some of the other films that you might know Chris Hemsworth from are Star Trek, the 2009 Uh, First film in the rebooted franchise, Snow White and the Huntsman in 2012, Red Dawn in 2012, also an underrated movie. The reboot of Red Dawn is really good. Men in Black International alongside Tessa Thompson in 2019 and his latest uh, Netflix movie, Extraction, which came out in 2020 and broke all sorts of uh, streaming records on Netflix. That movie, a lot of action, heavy movies. He was also... In the thriller, 2009 thriller, The Perfect Getaway. The Perfect Getaway is spooky. I'm not much for like spooky, uh, creepy movies, but uh, The Perfect Getaway was uh, one of those first Chris Hemsworth outings that I I didn't really know what he would become in that movie. Uh, But definitely a movie that uh, got us to where we are at now with him as Thor. He was also in the 2016 comedy remake of The Ghostbusters. His critically acclaimed films are more in the uh, in the horror kind of uh, genre. Cabin in the Woods, the 2012 movie, uh, received some acclaim, and he was also in the 2013 biopic Rush. Rush is a great movie. Again, if you have not seen Rush, you need to go out and watch Rush. While chatting with GQ recently, Chris Hemsworth had this to say uh, about his uh, expectations for Love and Thunder after the success of the Ragnarok film, the third one in the franchise. Here's what Hemsworth had to say. There's that same, if not more, pressure now to do that again. So there's a little bit of exciting, nervous energy that is motivating all of us to reach a little further and make sure we're covering all bases and approaching the scene from every angle. So Hemsworth sounds like he really does understand the pressure of having a hit film like Ragnarok uh, after a kind of a lackluster performance in Dark World, coming back with such a big, fun hit as Ragnarok, definitely uh, he's in that headspace where this film meant a lot to them. They knew they had to focus down 
on bringing a great film to this franchise. Hemsworth also teased uh, that what fans could expect from Love and Thunder. For sure, there will be a lot of love and a lot of lightning in this production. So, several times when I've been doing research for this fourth movie, both Taika Waititi and Chris Hemsworth have stated that this is a romance movie. And I I find that interesting because most MCU movies in the first, second, and third phases have just clearly been action movies. They may have interesting subplots that are derived from other genres, but they're mostly action movies. So for this movie to be stated as a romance film is kind of interesting and a little intriguing. Regarding his personal preparation for the film, Chris Hemsworth told The Telegraph, This is probably the fittest and strongest I've been in all the Thors. Having this time at home meant I explored different methods uh, of physical fitness to see how I can manipulate my body with just the right amount of powerlifting and bodybuilding workouts. So if you have seen Chris Hemsworth's physique recently on his Instagram or any of his social media platforms, the guy got freaking yoked for this role. It's truly awesome. He he could not look more like a comic book character in preparation for this new Thor film. On June, speaking of his social media presence, on June 1st of 2021, Hemsworth said via social media, that's a wrap on Thor Love and Thunder. It's all it's also National Don't Flex Day. So I thought I would just put a super relaxed photo uh here and it would be appropriate. And just so you know the uh the uh, accompanying picture is him in a tank top and just completely shredded out. So uh definitely a little bit of sarcasm there, but Hemsworth goes on to say the film is going to be batshit crazy off the wall funny and might also pull a heartstring or two. Lots of love Lots of thunder. Thank you to all the cast and crew who made this another incredible Marvel journey. Buckle in, get ready, and we'll see you in cinemas. So through the build through the buildup and filming of this film, Hemsworth has been extremely open about his relationship with Taika Waititi, and uh, they have uh, been in been on each other's social media posts. Chris Hemsworth is often seen uh, in pictures with him. In fact, the statement that I just read uh, was accompanied with a picture of Hemsworth and Taika uh, on the set together. So uh, we will cover Taika as a, as a part of our crew breakdown. We'll break down the producers, the writers, the directors, music, all that stuff. We'll break down all of that in its own preview episode. But uh, Hemsworth really, really did uh, an excellent job in uh, promoting this other film and making sure that we as fans feel like it is set apart and it is a different kind of monster. Yes, it's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he is really going the extra mile in promoting this uh, awesome film and definitely building up hype for fans and for uh, those who have already loved the uh, previous Thor installments. That does it for our cast preview of Love and Thunder, everybody. I hope you got just a little bit, maybe more information that you didn't know. Maybe uh, maybe you haven't been following the previews for the movie. If you're one of those where you just don't want it to be spoiled for you, I hope you at least enjoyed this primer. 
When trailers drop, we will cover them. We're going to cover the crew. We're going to go in-depth on the characters themselves so that you know who everybody is when you go to the film. Uh, You go to the film, the Cineplex, the theater, wherever you're going to go to watch it in May of 2022. We want to make sure that you are ready for that. But let's go to part one of our chat with former Marvel editor Mike Rockwitz. I hope you enjoy this chat. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's interview. I went out and got you a fantastic uh, discussion today with a former editor for Marvel Comics. He has touched into so many different characters. We want to talk to him today about his work on Thor. So I am uh, proud to uh, say Mike Rockwitz, welcome to Across the Bifroster. How are you tonight? Well, first of all, thank you, Ryan, for uh, reaching out to me uh, via Facebook. It's always nice to get in touch with people who remember me first and foremost. So I'm doing well. Uh, I'm excited that we get to talk about one of my favorite characters uh, in existence, the mighty Thor. Uh, So uh, it's a privilege, actually. I've been out of comics for so long. I've been out of comics longer than most people have been alive. So I got out of comic books in almost 20 something years ago. So it's nice to feel, dare I say, relevant. So thank you for asking me. (laughs) Well, we are we are really honored to have you back uh, to have you back into the world of comics uh, for, awesome. for even if it's for one night only. We're glad to have you back. Uh, I want to I wanted to just let our fans know uh, where in the nine realms do you call home? Well, I am a native New Yorker born in Manhattan in New York City, and uh, I've lived here my whole life with a brief stint in San Diego, California, when I was working for uh Image Comics, the Wildstorm uh, Publications, Wildstorm Productions, okay. whatever they call it. And I moved back in the in the 90s, and uh, I proudly call Astoria, Queens, New York, my home, and uh, represent Queens, yo. Awesome. That, I mean, <laughs> that's like the heart of Marvel country. Well, yeah, Marvel Comics, uh, when I joined in 1985 as a high school intern, was uh, located at 387 Park Avenue South, which is 28th Street and Park. And uh, I was a high school intern. Uh, I went to Regis High School on 85th Street, 84th Street and 85th Street in Manhattan. So it was about uh, six subway stops away. So after school, I'd get to go down to a Marvel comic. So uh, that, that's, that's where it all began in 1985. So, so that, honestly, that's a perfect setup for, for how I want to introduce people to you. What are some of your first memories of, of, of comics since you, you, you got into it when you were in high school? But what were... What were some of your first memories of being introduced to superheroes and comics uh, as a whole? I, I think it started, I have an older brother, and uh, he, we used to just go to the candy stores and comic book stores. Then there weren't comic book stores, but just newsstands, and just uh, pick comic books off the rack that were cool. And he liked DC, but, you know, that's his problem. And I, li- I like the colorful of comics of Marvel, like the Fantastic Four and Thor and the Incredible Hulk. And, uh, you know, this is, I'm talking maybe 1974, 1975. They were pretty cheap then. My mom was always uh, cheap too. So she'd give us a buck <laughs> and, um, you know, you get four or five comic books. And, what a deal. Uh, what a yeah, deal. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> and uh, you could go home and you could just pour through these and look at the colorful artwork and the sound effects. And you're like, wow, I was mesmerized. And um, 
I was a bit of an artist myself. I think everyone who likes comics is either a writer or an artist or some sort of creative, creative yes. soul. And, um, you know, I used to doodle in notepads and all that stuff in, in grammar school. And, you know, I, I like drawing Spider-Man and, you know, I, I just had an affinity for it. You know, it's just like something I, I was drawn to. And uh, Marvel would put out these little digest books. They were like little paperbacks. Okay, and, and it had like maybe the first six issues of the Incredible Hulk, or the first six issues of the Fantastic Four, or the Mighty Thor, or Spider Man, and um, you could read them, like even though like the continuity was like issue one forty of the Fantastic Four, you got to read the first six issues of the of the of the characters or the Mighty yeah. Thor, like Journeys into Mystery eighty three, and you're like, wow, this oh is so cool. God. So you know, like you, you just had that connection. So. The Marvel Universe, you know, I, I can't comment on the current state of it, but it was such a unique, tightly wound uh, universe. So yeah. that you could go backwards and feel like you didn't really miss too much in, say, 15 to 20 years. Like you could catch up that quickly because they were just so well written. They hadn't gotten so, uh, dare I say, bloated and scattered to the point where, you know, you we would see where Thor's originated you know, in Journey into Mystery and how it, it morphed into him getting his own title, the Mighty Thor, with all the, the characters of, you know, the Jack Kirby Stan Lee run. And then you went on to John Buscema. And, uh, like, that was a bit of a transition, too, because you go from Jack Kirby to John Buscema. Jack Kirby yeah. was just, like, very high stylized. He's my favorite artist of all time. I, and, um, you know, then went to John Buscema, who was a much more illustrative and polished artist and understood anatomy and, like, he was equally dynamic. It was just different, but it was still awesome because it put a different spin on on how how Thor was uh, just the the scenes and the women looked exotic and the monsters still looked ferocious and uh, the writing was good still. And then um, I I just kept up the interest and I was a fan. Yeah. Like I just collected. You know, I didn't think of anything of it. I had a subscription, <laughs> you know, where you got them in the brown bag, brown yeah. paper wrapping in your mailbox. And uh, and once those subscriptions ran out, I would just, you know, fill the, the gaps with uh, wherever back issue stores. Because in Manhattan, where I grew up, you had a cool store, I think, on 2nd Avenue called Super Snipes. And like 82nd okay. and 2nd. And you could go in there, and it was it was just a nice place to go. And you could smell the old paper, oh. and you'd see the old issues in, in plastic bags hanging on walls or in frames and old artwork. And it was just like – and I hadn't gone into Marvel yet. I was still a grammar school going into high school, so I was a few years away. But I was just like, wow. It was kind of like going to a museum for comic books. That's how cool it was. <laughs> that and, sounds amazing. Uh, and I was just so <laughs> transfixed on it. I was like – I. I love this. I had such a passion for it. And, you know, my love for the arts, like illustration and painting and sketching, you know, I was interested in it, but comic books really just pushed me to want to learn more about artwork. And even the writing of, of like Stan and Roy Thomas, uh, Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, the way they wrote the descriptive language, particularly in Thor. I mean, it was this yes. Shakespearean Elizabethan uh, dialect, you know, I don't know if that's how the Norse gods spoke, <laughs> but you know, thou and dost, and you know, I bid thee nay, and all these, I bid these thee nay. <laughs> all these, uh, all these sayings just were just so cool and unique to me because, as I, 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 it just appealed to me, you know, like Spider Man, I liked the character, I thought he was interesting, but he always seemed kind of like sad or like, oh, woe is me, and 
and Cap was always, was very patriotic and rigid and and he had his own dialect where he's always a proud American and I am Captain America. But Thor and the characters had such a dynamic, like with Loki, the the god of mischief. And, yeah. Uh, you know, then you'd have Ares and Pluto and all these strange characters. They all spoke differently, but they all spoke in such a, a language that I was like, it was just interesting to me. And it stuck with me. And I would use some of these phrases, like even when I'm talking to my friends, I bid thee nay. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, this is like on the, on the playgrounds, on, on the street after, at recess in grammar school. I was, um, dare I say obsessed, but not like to the point where it was unhealthy, but it's just something that it was part of my, my, my genetic makeup, I felt. Uh, I could just, I could just see the, on the playground, like you say, I bid thee nay to, you know, some of your elementary yeah. school friends. It's like, did Mike hit his head or something? Like, yeah, they, they just, they, they knew I liked comic books. I had a buddy who, uh, my friend Frank, Frank Roman, if he ever listens to this uh, when, it, when it's out, we used to go to the comic book shop. So it was like a big deal. You know, yeah. like now you have new comic book day and free comic book day, but like we would just go on a weekend or after school one day to the different comic book shops. And it was an adventure because you could get lost in the back issues. You could get lost in the current issues. And it was like, uh, it was kind of like going to the pool hall or the video arcade or going to the movies, but going to the comic book shop and, you know, comic book collecting, dare I say, wasn't glamorous. It was yeah. always, it always had that stigma of like, oh, what a nerd, what a loser, you're a recluse. <laughs> I didn't really care because it was my, it was escapist fantasy for me. And yeah. uh, I enjoyed it. And um, my friends just left me alone because they saw that I was passionate about it. They saw that I liked to draw the characters and they're like, wow, he's really taking this seriously. And um, so when now flash forward to when I'm actually at Marvel and people realize that I'm there and they're like, wow, Mike, you actually. <laughs> you you did it so it, it was just it was just a cool experience so those are my early um early memories of it and people encouraged me to buy comics they never said oh stop reading that it'll rot your mind or anything like that because if anything it was improving my vocabulary by leaps and bounds and yeah and I, and I went to great schools too uh on the upper east side i went to a catholic school saint ignatius loyola and then i went to regis high school as i mentioned so great education and uh you know, I was in spelling bees and all that, and but comic books really just <laughs> were like my education. Almost. Yeah, I read them more than my homework. So, um, <laughs> you, be that as I, it we're definitely uh, same birds of a feather there. Uh, as you, as you're flipping through these, like you talk about, you know, getting lost in these back issues and and sure. and, and spending so much time with that. Did you have a, like? Uh, a favorite hero that you gravitated to or like specific like issues that you gravitated to more than may maybe some of the others? Well, Thor, uh, I mean, we are talking on Thor and I'm not saying that just because we're on a podcast, it's focuses on Thor, but Thor yeah. was it. Thor was the S H I T to me, man. And, oh my uh, gosh. Yes. You know, uh, Jack Kirby. I, I mean, Jack need, Kirby. Need you say more? <laughs> Jack Kirby drew how many issues of that? while he was drawing Fantastic Four, while he was drawing issues of the Hulk and all of these other uh, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. But Thor was his mainstay. And I had to go back. I had to go back in time, dare I say, and get those back issues and see the yellowed paper and even the wrinkled covers. And just those covers alone uh, were, so, were so beautiful, just with the old printing. And it's so hard to replicate now in the digital. You'll never do it again. But the way they saturated the blacks on the covers and added some grays in there, like half tones of, of black, and the, the printing on them, 
the lettering, everything stood out. And, you know, and some of my favorite issues were the Jack Kirby Chick Stone ones where he had um, Mr. Hyde in and yes, also Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man. Oh, you're just I, speaking I, my language, man. I freaking love Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man. And the way Jack drew him in those issues was incredible. He just looked like this larger than life. And the cover, one of the covers that I think Vinnie Coletta was the anchor on the inside, like he's situated between these buildings, almost King Kong-like, because he had grown, he had absorbed the, the building and he was almost 40 stories high or something. And I was like, no other comic looks like this. People could say like Superman has great covers, but Thor, like he had a, a, a superheroic character with a red cape and yellow golden boots and long hair and a freaking hammer you know, and a winged helmet, and he could kick ass. I, I hope you don't mind me. Uh, no, no, you are you are fine. Okay, and uh, he just beat these people, and um, and then also like going back, you just saw how it progressed, and then you had the little tales of Asgard stories in the back, which was also like Young Thor. Wow, yep. those were neat. And then you went to the um, what was it the. I forgot the issue numbers. I think it was around the 150s. The Mangog saga. I with love Mangog. <laughs> I love Mangog so much that I have Mangog tattooed on my shin. You will, do not. I do too. That was my last tattoo. I just got it about four months ago. Oh, Jack Kirby, Vinnie Coletta, just black and white on my shin. I said, Mangog rules. And um, yeah. But, oh, that's I mean, so that's, awesome. That's just, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Talk about being a nerd, uh, uh, a fan of oh, the media. So going, going back and seeing those issues. And then also uh, Marvel used to produce the Treasury editions, those oversized ones. Yeah. And uh, they reprinted the Mangog saga in that. So you got to see it large, almost the size of the original artwork. Because artwork back then was oversized. It wasn't like this 10 by 14 or whatever it is now. It was like bigger. Yeah, it was just yeah. bigger pages and much more... It was just huge by comparison. And how do I know that? Because when I was at the offices, Jim Shooter was the editor in chief and he fought hard to get people their artwork back. And so you'd see the old artwork in the office in one of the offices there. So I saw the oversized artwork for some of these stores and Fantastic Four and Hulks and Spider Man's. It was amazing. But, but, but like, okay, I, I, there's so many things you just said that I just, I want to pick apart. I got I got to like prioritize because you mentioned Mr. Hyde and like we j- on on this show, Mike, on our on our Thursday episodes, we do an edition of the show called Throwback Thursday, where uh-huh. I I literally started at issue one, 83 of Journey into Mystery. And I've, I'm working uh, forward issue by issue. And we just covered Hyde a few weeks ago. Right. Um, so. Uh, I think uh, th- this is coming out right after we've done like the first appearance of the Enchantress. Um, yeah. So we're, we're right in that kind of sweet spot. Yeah, and you mentioned, yep. yeah, you mentioned Mangog and uh, there will definitely be a time where we cover the Mangog uh, saga as uh, as its own like episode, because that is just a spectacular storyline. It's so good. 
Um, well, the yeah. Mangog, not only do I have the tattoo, um, I don't really have an extensive comic book collection. I know that's heresy because I just, <laughs> I've moved so much and I've already owned them and read them and sold them and bought them again. The one the one issue I have proudly uh, hanging on my wall or somewhere in a box is the first appearance of the Mangog. It's oh. uh, one of the, my favorite characters. He's so silly looking with his yellow and reddish brown goofy as hell but you know big talons and fangs but anyway i digress yeah the cobra and mr hyde awesome awesome stuff and oh my god so straightforward dynamic artwork and it was so simple the artwork yeah let yet so dynamic that i think that's what drew me in if i was a fan of the medium today i would look at a comic book and say like there is no way I could draw like that. There's just too much distraction. There's just too much, you know, over rendering. Uh, you know, everyone's perspective is great. Everyone has gigantic muscles, but the way Jack drew things, they looked believable. They looked yeah. like wow, this Mr. Hyde. He looked like the the monster from the movies, like the black and white. I think it was Frederick March or someone. He sort of looked like him. Yeah. So you're like, you know, so it, it looked topical. It looked believable. But it still had a cartoony feel to it, so I was like, "This is just the best." So, so, uh, so a little, a little, uh, you know. The, the, honestly, I could sit here and talk about old uh, Jack Kirby art forever, and and uh, and we'll we'll get to like how I've got to Marvel in the first place. But sure. like, just speaking about speaking about Jack Kirby, I, I literally just about an hour ago finished up a, a different episode for for a different time, and me and a, and a buddy of mine, we talked for five whole minutes about one speech bubble that Jack Kirby drew. Yeah. Not, 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 not a whole panel, just one speech bubble and how it communicated so much. I mean, really, if you're going to read comics and you, you honestly, I think you have to start with Jack Kirby. Yeah, he is sort of, you know, he's my favorite. So of course I, I would definitely put a plug in for anyone who <laughs> wants to get introduced to the Marvel Marvel Universe the correct way. You know, it's Stan, Jack, Steve Ditko, of course. Yes. Steve Ditko inked Jack on a lot of things. And, you know, yes, he did. Shout out to Don Heck, too. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Don Heck. I, I work with Don Heck at Marvel, another brilliant artist who had his hand in Thor and some other stories there. And, um, you know, Jack's work was dynamic, a great writer. I mean, he could, he could have used an editor later on in his career, but, uh, you know, he, he was just awesome. And believe it or not, I have a dark side tattoo on my forearm and I have a devil Ugh. and I have devil dinosaur on my other shin. So, you know, <laughs> to, say, to say that I'm at Calabac, I have Calabac on my inner forearm to say that I'm a fan of Jack Kirby would be an understatement. But, uh, you know, it, Jack's art on Thor definitely catapulted me into wanting to do this. I said, I, you know, like I, I wasn't like a fan of like, I have to meet Jack Kirby. I have to meet Stanley as like. I just want to, like, like you said, like we started this off, like, how does this get made? Like, how yes. do I, how do I figure out how to make this so I can do it or I can learn how to do it or I could just do it myself or, or work with the people that do it, be a part of Marvel, be a part of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. How do I do that? Because <laughs> it was such a sense of community in the bullpen, bullet and pages. Yes. You always, you always felt like you knew these people. You know, because they just wrote about him, like you know, we're, here's a tour of the bullpen, and and there was a Foom magazine, Friends of Old Marvel magazine, <laughs> and uh, they would have like charts of the bullpen, and I'm like, where people sat in the offices, and I was like, something it clicked in my head, I was like, I want to be a part of that, and eventually I was, and <laughs> exactly. 
you know, flash forward <laughs> to 20 years later, I, like my little head was in an office and my name was called out. So just awesome stuff. So yeah, Jack, Jack is it. The old time uh, journey into mysteries. Just so incredible. You're talking about you in the bullpen. So let's uh-huh. let's let's get let's get up to the, that point. Like, was it always your dream to work for Marvel, or was that just something that kind of uh, came together organically? Tell tell us kind of your origin story, right? With getting to Marvel. Well, I guess I was at the right place at the right time. You know, I always wanted to to, to work in comic books all throughout high school. Uh, I just doodled in my notepad. Uh, I'd get to school early and just draw and draw and draw and draw these crazy characters. And then uh, when I was a, a senior in high school, uh, they had internships programs. Or, and a few kids in my school in the years before me had worked at Marvel Comics. So it was always like planted in my head. But like when you're a sophomore, a freshman, or even a junior, like you're not even paying attention to that stuff. It's like you're still no, a kid. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I have to get a job, uh, an internship. I didn't even know what that meant. And like I couldn't just Google the word. So um, uh, my time came. It was j- senior year. And they're like, well, what do you want to do as an internship? And I'm like, I don't know. I- I'd love to work in Marvel Comics. So I spoke to my advisor. He's like, well, unfortunately, that that's closed down. I was like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> I was like, is there any way you could work on that? And um, believe it or not, he did. So uh, he contacted someone who worked at Marvel. My first boss, Mike Higgins, was an, okay. a, a Regis graduate. And oh, wow. he, he put a word in for the woman, Lynn Cohen, who was like the hiring manager for the interns. Because uh, the internship that marvel brought in was through public schools like art and design and a few other schools okay. and i was i was going to a, a catholic school so it didn't really fit the, the the profile there but somehow they said okay we got you the internship i was like hot damn and then <laughs> yeah and i was super excited but like any i think it was pretty normal for a 17 year old time like the night before i was like oh my god i have to go to marvel comics tomorrow i'm scared i don't want to go i was completely like intimidated and I called my best friend's dad and he's like, oh, just do it. You know, if it, if it doesn't work out, go somewhere else. Like, like normal advice that I would give anyone like my own children these days. Like if it doesn't work out, that's OK. Just try something else. So I went and, uh, you know, it was just an office building, 387 Park Avenue South, 10th floor. I was introduced to Lynn, Lynn Cohen. If you if you ever listen to this, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, all I did was I got introduced to three other high, two other high school students who were going to the school of art high school of art and design okay steve busolato who's still in comic books and hector Colazzo, who was an artist who passed away way too early like 10 okay. years ago or something poor hector good friends of mine they immediately befriended me and what did we have to do at marvel comics i would go to there after school like two or three times a week i would check in with lynn and we would make photocopies of artwork because back then artists would mail in their artwork Okay. And the editors needed photocopies for the drawers in case artwork got lost in the mail. It wasn't like we had scanners and computers. Oh, okay. So my job and Hector's job and Steve's job was to make photocopies of the artwork. So they'd put it in a bin and say, make four copies at 100% and bring it back to this editor. So just by doing that, I got to meet all the editors. I got to see all, hold this original artwork in my hand. At the time, it was 1985. So I think uh, the first piece of artwork I ever held was a... Herb Trimpey, Barry Windsor Smith, Machine Man Limited Series. I oh think that was gosh. the first thing I ever worked on. And then there was also uh, some Secret Wars work and 
just all cool stuff. And I think I think Simonson's Thor pages may have been in there. I'm not entirely positive. Oh, but, stop. You know, that is 1985. <sighs> uh, oh, my so, goodness. And then also another job of ours was to sort the fan mail. Okay. So we would get bags of fan mail. We'd have to open, like, and, you know, I think Thor's uh, tagline was the hammer strikes. Or, okay. and then the Hulk's was Greenskin's mailbag, and, you know, don't yield back shield was shields or whatever it was, and power packings. And so we would have to sort the mail, open it up, and sort it, put it into folders, and then bring it to the editors so they could write their letter columns. Okay. And that was such a pain because there was just tons of, tons of uh, submissions that you had to sift through. <laughs> Because everyone wanted to get into comics. So you'd see all this artwork, like people sending in terrible drawings and stuff. And we'd have to put it into separate bins for our someone to review. And it was also the time of the Marvel tryout book. I don't know if you're familiar with that. but was, I, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. The Marvel tryout book was basically this oversized, like 60 page book where it showed you how to do comic books. Okay. And uh, how to make a comic book. And it had tryout pages where you could practice lettering and inking it was actual the actual wasn't the exact Bristol board that the artists were using, but it showed you how to do it. And they gave you sample Bristol board to say, practice inking, practice lettering, or maybe even pencil. So okay. everyone, everyone would be like sending in copies of that. And um, we'd have to sort through that. So it was, it was fun. It was busy work. And then once a week, Everyone, each intern would rotate and we get to work a morning in the Marvel bullpen. Like some days we were in there in the morning instead of the afternoon. So it was a morning in the morning in the Marvel bullpen okay. where everyone had their drawing tables. And we got to um, our first order of business was we had to get coffee for everyone. So it was about 15 cups of coffee from the local de deli. Okay. Uh, so I'd get everyone's coffee orders. And then I'd uh, basically learn how to make the comics, like do paste-ups, mechanicals. Uh, this guy, Barry Shapiro, may he rest in peace. He taught me how to do paste-ups. Uh, okay. With, with, with Important. Two with two coats of rubber cement uh, to, you know, paste-up letter columns and word balloons and things like that. And they showed me how to create uh, – how to size for photo stats in case panels of art need to be resized, like okay. blown up or reduced. So – uh i just was like wow this is way cooler than anything i ever learned in school so uh, <laughs> everyone was like oh we need to fix this we need to fix that go get coffee and i just befriended everyone it was an amazing opportunity to just meet everyone you wanted and guess what on fridays once in a while i got to lead the marvel comics tour because okay a tour of the office so i would just take people around and show them the 10th floor show people in the marvel offices the different editors so you had Ann Nascenti there, you had Ralph Macchio, you had Carl Potts, uh, you had Sid Jacobson who was doing um, Star Comic Books, you had Larry Hama was there, you had Denny O'Neill was still there. Um, okay. Jim Owsley, I don't know what he's called now, I think he changed his name. Uh, but okay. Yeah, he, was, he was Jim Owsley then, awesome guy too. And uh, we just would bring them in and sometimes they would talk to the people and sometimes they wouldn't and that was cool. So, uh, you know, like I just got to meet people. I got exposure. And um, when my internship ran out and I graduated high school, Lynn extended an offer to me like, hey, you want to work over the summer for $4 an hour? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. And then, and then I think it went up to four and a quarter by the end of the summer. So uh, 
yeah, I just got to meet everyone. I got to see the artists coming in. I got to put mail. I got to mail the artwork from the penciler to the inker. I got to mail the lettering from the letterer to the inker or the script went out to the penciler. So I got to see every phase of it and it fascinated me. I took to it and people trusted me because I guess I was just so enthusiastic about it that uh, they just wanted me to keep working there. And I had a good attitude about it. And, um, you know, knowing the editors and um, the artists as, as I got to know, grow there was super exciting. And, you know, they gave me nicknames and all that. I think I was called Schlocko, my first nickname, because uh, I had long straggly hair, like any teenager, <laughs> parted down the middle like David Cassidy style. So, you know, and I was skinny and I wore, you know, like Harley Davidson t-shirts. I just stood out like a sore thumb, like a broom handle, but that was fun. <laughs> it was fun. And um, I just had an awesome experience. So how did I get into becoming an, on the editorial staff? Was Yeah, yeah. I was a, uh, I was going to college. I was going to the School of Visual Arts, which was on okay. 20, 23rd Street in Manhattan. So it was about a six-block walk, eight-block walk away from um, from the offices. So I'd go to the offices like when I didn't have class. And then eventually, uh, while in college, the new universe was cropping up. The editors of that got fired, like this guy Elliot Brown and John Morelli. They got fired or they quit or they got pulled off the books. I don't know. Okay. The back, the back office stuff by Jim Shooter because that was his baby. Okay. And um, the new universe was born. And Mike Higgins was an assistant editor who I knew. He's the guy who broke me in through uh, the internship program. And then I just – he's like, I need an assistant editor. And I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, do you want to work here? I was like, sure. You know? <laughs> like, yes, so please. I, I, I kept going to school, and eventually I just transitioned to full-time work there. And I was making uh, – $14,000 a year, a whopping $14,000 a year. You were rolling in dough. I was, uh, I was balling back then. As the kids <laughs> call it today. I was flossing and um, I was working on the new universe and the new universe. And I'm on a new universe fan page here. So the fans of the new universe, so shout out to them. All okay. 500, all 500 of them. Uh, it was to me an abomination. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, I want to work on the Hulk and Thor. You know, like my I had my I had my sights set on something greater than the new universe, like Star Brand and Justice and Kicker Zinc and Night Mask and Spitfire and but it was a way to break in. And yeah. and then one of the other titles that Mike Higgins was given was the Silver Surfer. Oh like, my gosh. Ooh, ooh, the Silver Surfer. Cool. Finally a real legitimate Marvel comic instead of the, you know the new universe but i like the new universe it, it taught me how to make books it taught me how not to make books it taught me uh you know how teams are assembled how to make deadlines how to set deadlines how to track things because it's a big deal like being a comic book editor or an assistant editor is a big deal the name is just in the credits but they're basically like a baseball manager or, or a coach okay and they, and they assemble the team so they're responsible for hiring the writers and the artists and the letterers and the colorists and anyone else who's on it. So they're responsible for that. So they're looking for reliable people. So they're talent evaluators. And they also want someone who understands the continuity of the characters. With the new universe, none of that existed. So it was sort of like, well, you work with what you're given. Yeah. But say when you're given the Silver Surfer, you can't just hire any kid off the street. Just saying, okay, here's here's the keys to yeah. the Silver Surfer. Go make it, and uh, it'll sell millions because you know that's unlikely anyway. 
So um, that's that's where I learned. That's where I really cut my eye teeth, so to speak, yeah. on, on how to do this. So I just remained an assistant editor on the New Universe and and um, and the Silver Surfer. And then Mike quit, and I went over to Howard Mackey. And Howard Mackey, awesome, awesome human being. Loved working with him. He was so mellow, so cool. And uh, he became the writer of Ghost Rider and Spirits of Vengeance and all that other good good stuff oh, in the nineties. Cool. And uh, he was super cool to work with because I was like a I was a kid. I was like nineteen or twenty. So a nineteen year old kid or a twenty year old kid, you're easily distracted. Like I have a twenty year old daughter, <laughs> Maddie, and my son is eighteen. Sean, shout out to you kids. Love you guys. And um, what it is is like your attention span is all over the place. I was no different. And um, I was like a bucking Bronco out partying at night and then trying to get to work on time, which I never did. So, uh, <laughs> and, but Howard was patient. And then eventually um, I got moved over to uh, Terry Cavanaugh. Terry Cavanaugh was uh, promoted to editor. And okay. he, he took over this, this uh, weekly comic book or bi-weekly comic book called Marvel Comics Presents. I don't okay. know if you've ever heard of that. So that's the yeah, one that I have heard like, the name before. That had four eight-page stories in it. So it's 32 pages, no ads, came out every okay. two weeks. So, and he worked on Excalibur. So I got to work with uh, Chris Claremont and Alan Davis and Paul Neary. On nice. That, which was super cool. And um, with that in mind, like working on Marvel Comics Presents, you got to work with everyone because he needed stories, he needed writers. He needed everything. So there would be series, like the first one had Wolverine in it. So we worked with Chris Claremont and John Buscema, worked with uh, like Walt Simonson drew the first cover ever on that. And, you know, it had these backup stories and it was just, it was a great experience because I got to understand more of the Marvel Universe in that year's worth of time. And eventually Ralph Macchio, who was editing Thor, Yes, Captain yes. America and the Fantastic Four needed an assistant editor, and Ralph and I got along smashingly. So when there was an opening there, I shifted offices, and I had arrived. I had arrived at the offices of the Mighty Thor, Captain America, Fantastic Four, and uh, I think Doctor Strange at the time. So uh, that's I, I was my happiest there. So that that brings us up to kind of, you were assistant editor on Thor starting uh, what year, Mike? Oh, uh, maybe 1988, 1989. Okay, so um, I, I just so uh, so currently in the in the uh, Mike Rockwitz uh, epic, we're in 1988. So up it, up until this point, outside of your work on Thor, what hit, what were some of your uh, like you say like maybe your, your three favorite books you had worked on up until this point? What would you what would you say? Uh, wow. That's a tough one. I could say, well, working at Marvel Comics Presents was amazing because I, I worked on the Black Panther limited series with Don McGregor, Gene Colan, Tom Palmer, and Joe Rosen. Very and cool. What had happened was that Glynis Oliver was the colorist and uh, she couldn't meet one deadline. So uh, Terry's like, hey, we need a colorist. Can you do this eight pages overnight? <laughs> and, and I was like, sure. And Don McGregor bless him one of the most amazing human beings and creators i've ever met who doesn't get enough credit as far as i'm concerned even in present day with the success of the black panther uh i went over to his house in brooklyn and we went over every single panel of, of gene and tom's artwork and i colored it in front of him 
I barely got any sleep and that broke me in doing that. So that was a really awesome. rewarding experience. And um, so that was one of my favorites because I got to work with Gene Cohen and Tom Palmer, who were just my like my idols. And then I, I worked on a an issue of Wolverine with John Buscema. I was a colorist on that. So I think mostly like anything are yeah. creative, you know, like editing things and being the assistant editor. I, I just enjoyed coming to work every day, even though I never showed up on time. Uh, it was just <laughs> exciting to hold the artwork, talk about the stories, have input in the plot, have input on the story arcs and like where are we, what are we, where are we going to be in six months or a year with this, with this character? How can we tie it into something else? You know, I, I always had that enthusiasm about it and how to, how to work on it. So, um, those are some of my favorites. Yeah. And, and uh, along the way, I also, Mike Higgins also worked on Conan the Barbarian. A shout out to Conan the Barbarian. Okay. Yes. A, lic a licensed character and Patty Redding, Patricia Redding. She was like the managing editor of Conan the Barbarian and the Black and White magazines and all that. And that was just awesome because it's a completely different universe where, you know, it's Conan. And yes. uh, I loved working on that. It was fun working on Conan, King Conan, Conan the Barbarian, Savage Sword of Conan, and also the reprints, Conan Saga. So my love of back issues and reprints that I had as a kid, I got to work on those, building them out for Conan Saga with Patty. So she taught me a lot too in, in how to do that because she had been there for several years working with Larry Hama. So those were fun. Conan's a great character, and uh, I loved working on that. So I fast forward to me being in, in Ralph's office, I think at that time, Tom DeFalco was writing Thor. And yeah, Ron, late and, 80s, yep. And Ron Friends was on it, and Brett Breeding, and Joe Sinnott. And, uh, you know, Tom, as he would say, it's real hoo-ha action in the old Marvel manner. And, um, <laughs> and it was. It was exciting. It was super cool. It was fun. Ron Friends had the Jack Kirby, John Buscema, uh, you know, John Romita flair to his pencils. He was dynamic. You had former, Joe... former guest of the podcast, Ron friends, shout out to Ron friends. He is amazing. He's a terrific human being. Uh, wow. It was so much fun working with him because he would turn in these covers where the cover copy was already in place and it looked like Jack Kirby drew it, but it was Ron friends drawing it. It just had that excitement. And it was like, I felt like I was a kid again even though I was still a kid. I was only 20, 20. When, when Ron stopped by the podcast, we talked a lot about Jack Kirby as well. Well, uh, yeah. So good to know that that's a through line that, you know, a lot of people uh, have from working at Marvel. With, with um, I'm just curious, um, speaking of creators, Mike, what, what were, who are some, you mentioned like Tom DeFalco and Ron friends, and you've mentioned so many different names that, you know, I would encourage people to go look up. Who are some of your favorite creators to work with? Maybe like, you know, one-on-one um, -on -one or people that you just really appreciated be spending time with? Well, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Joe Sinnott, who was a legend. I mean, Joe Sinnott was the anchor of some of the earliest issues of the Mighty Thor. He even penciled some of the early Mighty Thors. Yes. Joe yeah. was a gentleman and a legend. And even though I was a 20-year-old upstart kid, he treated me like I was a 50-year a pro. Tom Palmer. Tom Palmer was a gentleman, incredible artist. John Buscema, Chris Claremont. There's so many I worked with, but I love working, with, you know, like even with Ralph. Ralph Macchio taught me so much. And like one of my favorite writers who everyone made fun of me for hiring because I gave him everything I ever worked on was Roy Thomas. 
Oh, jeez. Yeah, Roy Thomas. I loved working with Roy. He was the greatest professional I've ever worked with. He taught me. I mean, he was the former editor in chief of Marvel Comics and Stan's yeah. right hand man for a while there. So to be able to be Roy's boss, you know, yes. when you're this young <laughs> and have him teach you as you're going along, like what better apprenticeship could you get? So Roy Thomas and I, I love working with Rich Buckler. Rich Buckler was just awesome. And, uh, you know, I'd be doing a disservice if I forgot some people like John Romita Jr., John Romita Sr., yeah. Al, Al Williamson, um, Paul Ryan, may he rest in peace because he was working on Fantastic Four at the time. And, uh, you know, just so many incredible creators I was fortunate to work with. And they were all great to me. You know, like you may hear stories of like, oh, this guy was difficult to work with and everything, but not with me. You okay. Know, I, I work with Jackson Geis. I, I work with just about everyone. And it was always a lot of fun. And as long as you treated them well, they treated me well. And it was just mutual respect. And uh, I wasn't a fanboy about it. It was just like, hey, we have a job to do. We have to get these books out. And I, I treated them as best as I could. And when they were late, they're like, okay, you're late. And we'll just figure out how to get it done. And uh, it was an awesome experience. So I probably rattled on too many creators, but the hell with it. Well, honestly, I think for for fans out there listening, and maybe you know, maybe maybe you know the name Jack Kirby, but you maybe you don't know you know uh, Basemas you know that well. You don't know Ramita Junior. Senior. You don't know some of those names. I think that actually just gives people more incentive to go look into those those people's works. Yeah, um, and and Ramita Junior. actually was drawing Thor uh, in two thousand or something because I have some. Uh, a trade paperback someone gave me when I visited the office. Like you might want to look at this, and his story was beautiful. Yeah, was like wow, it looked regal. He looked regal. It was well illustrated. So yeah, those were awesome humans to work with. So so speaking, you know, let, let's you know. Well, that does it for the show today, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our breakdown of the cast of Love and Thunder, our first time covering that movie on the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed part one of our chat with Mike Rockwitz. Next week on the show, we'll have the remainder of that conversation with him. And we will be jumping into a brand new list on the show. We did a list about uh, Odin moments way back during our All Father's Day special. But next week... We're bringing it back. We're going to do a list on Thor's top villains. If you love villainy and you love lists, you're going to enjoy this episode. We cover everybody from Surtur to Hela, from Malekith to Loki. It's going to be a good time. And we have some of our mightiest guests lined up to return on that show. As always, we thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to share it with a friend and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe the show wherever you find great podcasts. If you want to talk more about Thor and his world, go follow us on Instagram at Mighty Thor Podcast and we would love to chat with you there. I have been Ryan Doz. I hope you had a great time today and until next time you join us aboard the Rainbow Bridge, don't forget to stay worthy.